0: So we're in the third or the fourth week of our series and, and actually this series is going to go on a couple more weeks because God just keeps teaching me more and more about pain and how we process pain and so we said the first thing you need to do is you need to identify where your pain comes from because that's going to determine how you respond to it so the first week we looked at we have some pain in our lives because this is a fallen world because the world is messed up because Adam and Eve sinned they chose to sin they brought destruction into the world and we are the products of six thousand ten thousand however many years we've been around, humans have been on the earth. We're the product of years and years and years of sin infecting even the planet. The Bible says that the, the earth groans waiting for the day that Jesus Christ will make it right again. And so there are just some things we face because it's a fallen world. We said the second week that we have some pain in our lives because of spiritual attack. And so if you're, if you're, the source of your pain comes directly from demonic forces, there's a, sp- a particular way you're supposed to respond to that. So you identify it and you put it in that bucket and then you respond the way God tells you to. Um, two weeks ago, last week, Casey preached, two weeks ago, we talked about there's a source of pain that comes from others' sin. Has anyone ever sinned against you? Anyone been sinned against? Yes, there is a particular way that you're supposed to respond to that. When it comes from this source, the Bible says to forgive. You don't forgive for them, you forgive for you. Because if you don't forgive, the poison will infect your heart, and you are the one who will die of bitterness, not the other person. Now, today, we're going to look at this source (laughs) that, that... I think we don't talk about enough and that's my own sin. There's some things that, that happen to me. There's pain in my life. I'll hold it up over there so you can see. There's pain in my life that comes directly because of the choices that I made. So David says this in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. And this, this applies to what we're going to be talking about today. He says, search who search me, not my neighbor. Don't search Janie, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Test who? Not Mary. You're just sitting there. You're on the front, second row. Don't test Mary, test me, and look at this. Know my anxious thoughts. Did you know anxiety has been around as long as there's been people? We just didn't know it was a disorder. Know my anxious thoughts. Lord. This is David crying out to the heavenly father. This is the man after God's own heart. This was probably written when he became king of the entire nation of Israel. If you remember, Israel was split in two. He became the king of Judah, and then a few years later, he became the king of the entire nation. This was probably written at that time. And David had a heart for God. Search me, God, not anybody else. Test me, know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Point out anything in me that offends you. That's David's prayer. And that's a great prayer for anybody. God, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me on the path of everlasting life. The reason this is a big deal is because wrong ideas about God lead to wrong ideas about who you are and who what you are supposed to do. And it lead, this leads to a wrong life on the wrong road, which inevitably ends up in the wrong destiny. Whatever road you're on, you're going to end up where that road leads. So we've got to have the right idea about God. Sometimes we just have to admit that the web of suffering and pain that we're in, we have woven by our own sinful choices. We have to own up to that. And so we're going to look at, we looked at this a few weeks ago, we're going to look at it more in detail today, the story of David when he sinned greatly, and it's probably his most infamous sin. This is 2 Samuel 11, 1-5. In the spring of the year when kings go where? Let's try that again. In the spring of the year, when kings go where? Out to battle. Why in the spring of the year? It's just common sense. There's no rain. It's not cold. It's pleasant weather. It's great temperature to kill someone. So that's when you go out to war. What idiot would go to war in the winter? Or in the summer? The spring is the perfect time. Not too hot, not too cold. It's just practical. I'm I'm just being real. It's just practical. So when kings are supposed to go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then what are those next two words? Oh, I could ask you about the greatest mistake you've ever made, and you'd probably start with, well, it happened. And it might be... I had these friends, or I was at this place. It happened, and you remember, right? You remember. It happened. This is a big deal. When did it happen? How long have y'all been going to this church? I highlight the things I want you to read. So when did it happen? Thank you for playing. Now we'll get to that in just a second. When David arose from his couch, David had been taking a nap. That's what this means. I'm not throwing rocks at David. I like a 15, 20-minute nap every day. And I am just a new man. So I'm not throwing rocks at David. It's what he did after his nap that got him in trouble. He got up from his nap, and he was walking on the roof. Now, where was David supposed to be? At battle. Where was David? On the roof of his house. Now, the king's house, just because this is the way things were in that time, the king's house was the highest structure in the place. No one, because you didn't have authority, you couldn't have a structure higher than the king's house. So the king's house is probably on a hill. It's the highest structure in the place. And so he goes up on his roof, and he's walking around. He's bored. He just got up from a nap. He should be doing something kingly. He should be doing something for the government. No, he's, he's taking a walk on the roof by himself. And he saw a woman from the roof. What was she doing? She was bathing. I was, As a kid, I thought that's why her name was Bathsheba, but that's just... I really did. And the woman was very beautiful. So I told you this before. It wasn't an ugly woman that caught his attention. I don't have anything... Anyway, it was a beautiful woman. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Okay, at this point, David's about 50 years old. He already has seven wives, which was against God's law. You're only supposed to have one. One's enough. Can somebody say, I know that's right, baby? Yeah. That is right, one's enough. Janie told me the other day, she said, I don't need more than one man. She said, you're the only man I can handle. I'm not sure if that was a compliment, but right back at you, baby, you're the only woman I can handle. One's enough. So you don't need information about something you know that's sinful. Let me say that again. He inquired. No, no, no. You don't need to inquire. You got seven women that you're married to and then countless concubines. He was living in sin. All right? The Bible Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. It just tells it as it is. Warts and all. And this is a wart on David's life. He had seven wives at this moment. Why does he need to inquire about another one? Because he's bored, because he's in the wrong place. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one, one of his servants said... Uh, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the what? Done. Don't need to hear anything else. Done. Go run a marathon. Go climb a mountain. Go shear a sheep. I don't know. Do something. He was a shepherd. Go chase sheep. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite was one of his his, um, elite fighters and actually was one of David's friends. This just gets worse. So David sent messengers. Why did he send messengers? Because he'd already decided he was going to sin. Wrong place, wrong time, bored. He'd already decided he didn't care. That this, he knew the Bible. He knew the Bible said, you shall not commit adultery. He didn't care. He'd already decided he's going to, he's going to sleep with her. So David sent messages, took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. I think the only reason this is in the scripture is just to say this was after her monthly cycle. And when are you most fertile ladies? Just a few days after your monthly cycle, everything is ready. I think the scripture was, this was put in the scripture to say she was ripe to get pregnant. They knew. They weren't ignorant back then. They knew. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. Surprise! And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David was at such an arrogant place in his life that he thought, I can have casual sex. And just let me tell you, there's no such thing as casual sex. I can have casual sex and get away with it. And even if he'd gotten away with it, who is the one person that you can never hide your sins from? God, the father, he sees and the Bible says, be very sure your sin will always find you out. David's caught because she's pregnant, but it gets worse. I'm just going to kind of walk you through this story. I got a lot of highlights here in, in my Bible. So this is from 1 Samuel 11. And so David realizes he's caught. So here's what he does. He sends he, he sends a message to the front lines where they're doing battle, where the men of God are doing what they're supposed to be doing. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. He's like, oh, no, I've got to get homeboy home so maybe he'll have sex with his wife and nobody will know it's my baby. He sent the word to where Joab was, and then he brings him back and he says, hey, Uriah, why don't you go down? Take it easy. Well, first of all, he says, so how's Joab? I mean, this is in the scripture. Uriah comes back. He's been fighting. He's doing his duty. So, how's your commander? I think uh, Uriah's like, good. And he asked, How are the other fighting men? They're at war. Then David said, Why don't you go to your house and wash your feet? Take a load off, take it easy. You're special. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king. Here's a gift. Take this to your wife. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all the master's servants and did not go down to his house. Why? Because he's a righteous man. You're going to find out why in a second. So David was told Uriah didn't go home. So he calls him back in and says, Uriah, haven't you just come from the military campaign? Why not go home? Hey, why not go home? Because we think that David's men, that all of his fighting men, based on Old Testament law, they didn't have sexual relations before or during a military campaign so that they could focus on the military campaign. So who knows how long? Go ahead, Uriah. Go enjoy. Look what he says. Uriah said to David, because Uriah knew the Old Testament, David knew the Old Testament, so he he's kind of gently um, rebukes his, his king. The ark, that it's the ark of God, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? Surely, as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah was more righteous than his king. So David said, all right, all right, all right. David, David's a, he's a strategist. And so he's thinking, oh, no, what can I do? So he says... Stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. Here, have a little more wine. Here, have a little more wine. Here, have a little more wine. Surely, if you have enough wine, you're going to go have sex with your wife. And then I'll be off the hook. But even drunk, Uriah was more righteous than his king. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and he did not go home. And so David said, if he's not going to have sex with his wife, I've got to kill him. So he writes a letter, gives it to Uriah, and says, here, take this to Joab. Be on your way. And the letter says, put, put Uriah at the front of the line, right next to the wall. And when the fighting is the fiercest, I want you to draw back and leave Uriah there. Now, Joab knew that he couldn't do just Uriah. Or everybody go, what? So he sends a lot of the elite fighting men up to the wall when it's the fiercest, he pulls back, and all of those fighting men up there in this one section are killed. And so he says to his servant, go back to King David and say, hey, we're suffering casualties of war, but, but say, and Uriah's dead. Because Joab's smart. Joab's not a, a, a righteous man. He's, he's incredibly unrighteous, but he's smart. And he knows what the king wants. He wants Uriah dead. So tell the king Uriah is dead so that he comes back and says this, and here's what David says to the servant. Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. It's okay. You killed the guy I wanted dead. You're helping me out. It's okay. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Check this out. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and married her. And she bore the son that, that he had impregnated her with. And then you need to hear this last verse. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. <laughs> David's, David suffered the consequences of this sin for the rest of his life. We're going to hear the pronouncement in just a minute. But the sword, he said, oh, the sword devours one another. God pronounced the judgment on him. The sword will never leave your house. And can I tell you that that if you don't figure out where the pain is coming from and if it's your sin and you don't deal with your sin the way God wants you to, your sin, you will suffer the consequences for the rest of your life and it may be passed on to generation after generation after generation. You've heard of generational sin. Well, that's how it gets started with you. Or maybe with your parents and you repeating the mistakes they made. So if we don't want to be like that, how do we, what do we do? Well, what do you do with pain you've caused? Number one, you review the game tape. Now, I know we don't have tape, the game video or the game digital now, but how many of y'all ever played a sport where they videoed it and then you had to go in and watch afterwards? Anyone? Anyone? All right. Why do you do that? Just because you like See, okay, so if you had a good play, you wanted the coach. So ours, he had a clicker you know, it actually had the, the wire that ran to the, it was nine millimeter tape and it was real to real. you know, so they would have, one of the coaches would have to drive to Amarillo, Texas, which is about the same distance as here to, to Tyler. He would get it processed and then he would be back at the gym at, at our uh, field house by 10 o'clock the next morning. We would come and we would work out, we'd go run and then we would come in and watch film. And so the coach, if you made a good play, you're waiting on the coach to go, check this out. Look at Washburn, man, that's was a great play. But our coaches, we're sadistic. And so if you made a bad play, he'd go, watch this. Washburn's a screw up. Then he'd run it back. Washburn, did you see that? I'm like, I saw it coach. No, I don't think you did. Watch this Washburn. I mean, over and over and over. Was he just trying to humiliate me? Yes, but he had a, he had a further purpose. Why, why would he want me to watch that game tape? He doesn't want me to make the same mistake again. If we're going to be successful on the football field, we, we have to learn our lessons. I want you to name some sport, professional level where they don't have coaches. Even Tiger Woods, now, you know, he's, he's recuperating. He had, even at his best, he had a golf coach. Why? because we always need somebody on the outside coaching us, looking at us. We need to learn from our mistakes. Now, I know you don't want to look at your past sometimes because it's painful to look at it, but if you don't look at it, you're not going to learn from it, and you're going to keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Can you imagine if you had the habit in your life of having a coach sit down with you after your successes and after your failures to help you process how much better your life would be today? Did you know we have a free program Called Celebrate Recovery, where that's what they do. Free counseling on Monday nights. Because David did not have a plan, he actually planned to fail. So his to do list didn't look like this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna condense his to do list from after the fact because he didn't have a to do list. Here's what his to do list looked like get bored. Offend God, commit adultery, and I could put offend God in there again. Lie about it, which would offend God. Cover it up, which would offend God. Kill her husband, which would offend God. Lie some more, offend God. Bury your friend, marry his wife, watch your baby die. That's what he did because he didn't have a plan not to fall into that. How did this happen? Okay, let's go back and look at it. David was at the wrong place. That's the next one. David was at the wrong place. Where was he supposed to be? Battlefield. Where was he? Rooftop. Now, just for for argument's sake, the right place, go ahead and put that one up there if you would, is what? The battlefield. Let me ask you this. Where's the right place for a follower of Christ on a Sunday morning? Are you sure? Who said that? Thank you. Aiden knows. Where's... I'm not trying to be offensive. But where's the right place for a follower of Christ on a Sunday morning? Church. Thank you, Aiden. Is that a difficult concept to, to figure out? Thank you, Aiden. We're just gonna have a conversation. So let's go back. David's at the wrong place, rooftop, at the wrong time. <laughs> when was he on the rooftop? Late one afternoon, bath time. This is traditionally when the women would bathe. So you just woke up from a nap. You're not at battle. You're bored. You go to the rooftop. Let me just Why would a man go to the rooftop at bath time? You don't know yet. (laughs) <laughs> he went because he wanted to check out the women by going up the rooftop at that time David put himself in a position to fail and let me just tell you that you and I are most susceptible to temptation when we are interpreting our life as peaceful instead of a battlefield according to the Bible for a Christ follower when Is it peacetime for you? That's good, but incorrect. When it's peacetime for a Christ follower is when you die. As long as you're on this planet, you're in a battle. And church, we get encouragement. We get prepared for the battle. But we don't ever ignore the battle. You with me? Here's what... Peter, uh, yeah, Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. And so I I made this red because this is bad. You're what? You have an enemy who wants to destroy you. The devil, what does he do? Now, I think this this is comical to me. He prowls around like a roaring lion. He's not really a roaring lion. He does not have the permission to destroy you unless you give him permission. Come on in, roaring lion. Lead me to hell. That's the only way he can destroy your life. He prowls around like a roaring lion, making all kinds of noises to distract you. Why? Because he wants to devour you. He wants to destroy you. You see, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, we're told about it in in, uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. Jesus was tempted and every time he used the word of God, it is written, it is written, it is written. Then he said, be gone, Satan. Well, in Luke, it gives us a little detail that's not in Matthew. It says that when Satan had finished tempting Jesus, he left Jesus until an opportune time. So he he was like, okay, you got it this time, but I'm coming back. He, in his mind, I'm looking for a time. I'm looking for a time. Let me ask you this. Would you say that a rooftop in late afternoon was an opportune time for the king? Yes, it was. This is what blows my mind. People, people all the time, Christ, Father, Christ, oh, can't get into this. Don't have time today. A lot of people claim to be Christ followers that show no evidence of being Christ followers. Um, The Bible says that when when you are adopted in the family of God, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you and seals you. If there's no Holy Spirit inside of you, then you're not saved. And the Holy Spirit, even though you may have struggles, the Holy Spirit produces in you fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If there's none of that in your life, I would seriously, if I were you, I would question Am I really a Christ follower? Got that out of the way. Christ followers say, Why is this happening to me? Fallen world, spiritual attack, others sin, or maybe it's your sin. Much of the pain in our lives is preventable. Make the decision when you're in right mind. So I'm not making this up. I When I decided I was going to be a virgin when I got married, was I don't even remember, I was 13, I was in youth group, and somebody said, I don't know if it was my mom or if my youth director or whatever, somebody said, you need to decide right now if you're going to have sex in a car or if you're going to wait till marriage. And I remember going... I don't want to have sex in a car. It was like, like, Aiden, I don't know why a guy would go on the rooftop late in the afternoon. I don't know, but I'm not going to have sex in a car. And so I remember them saying, you make your decisions in the light when you have your right mind so that you don't even have to make a decision when you're in the dark and you're not in your right mind. You've already made that decision. So much of the pain we experience comes from boredom or decisions we make, in the aftermath of trauma. So I, I came across this. I was, I was looking through this, and I came across this uh, quote from, from uh, the 18th century. This was Samuel Johnson. He says, If you are idle, be not solitary. If you're solitary, be not idle. So David goes up on the roof. He shouldn't have done that. He should have not had an idle mind. He should have gone and done something that a king would do. If he wanted to take a walk, why didn't he call the high priest? Is he going to look at the women? Hopefully, he's not going to look at the women from the rooftop with the high priest. You never know. Thank you. If you're idle, be not. Ask somebody to come with you. And here's why this is a big deal. Because my worst enemy is my inner me. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. But your inner me has to cooperate him, cooperate with him before he can destroy you. Don't you ever say, well, I know me. (laughs) I'm sorry. Jeremiah says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, sin isn't something we do. It's who we are. Bible says that we're born with a sin nature. I wasn't guilty of sin because I was born, but I was born with my father's sin nature. Did my father have to teach me to lie? No, he had to beat that out of me. Did my father have to teach me to steal? To be selfish, your father didn't either. We learn that. We have to teach children how to be better. David, though, was an adult. David was the king. David was 50 years old, and David should have known better. So in my studying, I came across this, and I wanted to read this to you. This is from um, Warren Wearsby. This is the Old Testament Bible commentary. He says this, When David laid aside his armor, he took the first step towards moral defeat. And the same principle applies to believers today. Without the helmet of salvation, we don't think like saved people. Uh, Without the breastplate of righteousness, we have nothing to protect our hearts. Lacking the belt of truth, we easily believe lies. And the lie in this situation is you can get away with it, David. You're the king. You do whatever you want to. Without the sword, which is the word of God... And the shield of faith, we are helpless before the enemy. Without prayer, we have no power. And for the shoes of peace, listen to this, because we we know that part of the the armor of God is the the crocks of peace, the shoes of peace, the sandals of peace. David walked in the midst of battles for the rest of his life. David would have been far safer on the battlefield where he belonged than on his rooftop. By lingering and looking, David tempted himself. He should have just run. He knew the story of Joseph. What did Joseph do? Joseph was tempted day after day by Potiphar's wife, and he refused day after day till she grabbed his cloak. He ran out of his clothes, in his underwear, running out. Ah! You know what he didn't do? He may have looked funny running out there in his underwear. You know what he didn't do? Have sex with Potiphar's wife. Right? I mean... You are on a roll today, Aiden. Psalm 51 five says this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived, conceived me. Do you know who has lied to me, manipulated me, betrayed me more than anyone else on the planet? Me. And the same goes for you. The devil doesn't usually tempt us with the ridiculously evil but with the deceptively good. You're the king. You can do what you want to. It's just casual sex. No one's going to know. See, the devil's so predictable. He, He tempts you to compromise, and when you compromise, then he condemns you for it. He will take what you've done, and he'll try to make you believe that's who you are. Adulterer. Liar. Cheater. Divorced. That's not who you are, but he tells you that. So if we're not going to be like David and compromise, what do we need to do? Second is make a game plan. There are two things that we have, two components to our being. There's the spirit, and I'm calling this the, the capital, the, the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that, that with, before Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So dead people, dead people don't have a spirit. But God made us alive when we came to Christ, and he deposits the Holy Spirit in us. So we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the flesh. And whoever, whichever one is going to win is the one you feed the most. Feed the flesh, starve the Spirit, and you'll be a serial compromiser. You'll be known your whole life as a compromiser. But if you put on the armor of God and feed the Holy Spirit in you, God will turn you into an overcomer. It's like an army laying siege to a, a city. They cut off all of the supplies. That w- that's what you do to your flesh. You cut it off and you feed the Holy Spirit. You game plan to be more like Christ. And here's the good thing no matter how far you've gone from God, you can't outrun God. You're never outside the reach of His grace. But God will bring you face-to-face to your consequences. He wouldn't be a loving heavenly father. He wouldn't be a holy heavenly father if he didn't hold you accountable for your sin. Here's what happened to David's life, 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story, and you've heard this before. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate, drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived in the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one stole, uh, he stole for having no pity. Now, this was the, if you stole something, this was the Old Testament law. You had to pay back four times as much. So he's just repeating the Old Testament law. He should pay back four times, four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said, you are the man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel, and I saved you from the power of Saul. And then it says, if that had not been enough, I would have done more for you. That's what God said to him. Isn't it interesting how we can recognize sin in others that we don't see in ourselves? David was far worse than the man in the story who just killed a lamb. He took a wife. In fact, she became his eighth wife. And the cool thing about this story is that immediately, now, well, he covered it up for nine months. But when Nathan, from the prophet of God, came to him, he immediately said, I have sinned. He doesn't blame it on anybody else. He doesn't call it a mistake, an error in judgment. I've sinned. So number three is, if you don't want to be like David, if you don't want to mess your life up, then confess your sins. Because I can tell you this, God will allow you to experience the consequences of your sin so that you'll need him. And and I read uh, read this. It says, bitter are the consequences of forgiven sin. I've been forgiven, but I'm still paying the consequences of my stupid choices. But no matter how far you've run, you can't can't outrun God. And here's, here's why I know this. Psalm 51, this is the intro. This is actually in my Bible, probably in most of your Bibles when I looked it up online at BibleGateway.com. This is the intro to Psalm 51 that says this. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, Here's a worship song, Rachel, here's a worship song. This is what this is for the for the music leader. Here's a worship song. How did we get it? Well, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's in the word of God. But look what David says: "Have mercy on me, O God, according to your what? Do you understand what unfailing love is? Not failing. According to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Unfailing love, great compassion. And he says, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Not my neighbor. Not my kid. Not my boss. Cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So a couple of things. We're almost done. Worldly sorrow is I got caught. Bible tells talks about the difference in this. Godly sorrow is I grieved God's heart. Now let me say this: David definitely sinned against more than God. There were people he sinned against, right? Uriah, Bathsheba, um, the kingdom. But what David realized is he's going to stand before God, and, and God was holding him accountable. And, and David's saying, I sinned against you, and here's the thing. If you, if you confess your sin against God and make things right with God, then you will go make things right with people. David couldn't make things right with Uriah. I think God did that. I think God is, is the ultimate person who hands out justice and mercy and grace. So I think Uriah got justice and mercy and grace. If we get things right with God, we'll make things right with people. Here's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 says. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. You'll know the difference. If someone says, I'm sorry, and they keep repeating it, then that's that's worldly sorrow. If someone says, I have sinned against God and against you, that that is Godly sorrow, it leads to repentance. It leads to salvation. So if you do these things, if you review the tape, if you game plan, um, if you confess your sins, then, then you can move to step four and you can be restored. All throughout history, God has brought people back from the worst situations. And when I, when I was reading that this morning, I just thought of the, the evidence. All throughout my history, your faithfulness has gone before me. So what you think about this. If God can take a, righteous mur- a, a self-righteous murderer like Saul, we call him Paul, he was changed, and turn him into the greatest church planner in the history of the world, the guy who wrote half of the New Testament. If God can turn a liar like Abraham, he lied more than once, into the father of our faith. If he can take a murderer like Moses and turn him into the guy who led millions of Jewish slaves to freedom, if he can take a deceptive, cheating, traitor like Matthew and turn him into one of the 12 disciples, then what could he do with little oh, OU? If you put your sin and your pain into his hands and let him heal you. This isn't the end of the story. Because David confessed, he and Bathsheba have another baby. Do you know, do you know what that baby's name was? Solomon. Not even a full chapter later, 2 Samuel 12, 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. What does that last phrase say? The Lord loved him. God restored them when David admitted his sin. In Matthew chapter 1, we have a genealogy of Jesus. So it's his family tree. Matthew's writing to a bunch of Jews and and... The reason it, I think, the reason it's the first book in the New Testament is because they had to establish if Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah had to be a a descendant of David, and if you read through this, it goes all the way back to King David, and and God had promised David, you'll you'll have someone on the throne forever, and that's Jesus, that's the Messiah. But what's interesting to me, and I don't. What's interesting is there's four women in the genealogy of Jesus. And if you're trying to take something to a court back in those days, you, women couldn't be in court. That you didn't, you didn't take their testimony. Again, I think this is how the Bible and how Christianity is different from any other religion because Jesus valued women. God values women more than anybody else. And he put four women into the lineage of Jesus. And the first one was Tamar. Tamar was raped by one of David's sons. Completely disgraced. Why would God put her in there? I think it's because God says, I can take any situation and work it into the lineage of the Messiah. Um, Rahab, you remember? Rahab, there's something, there's a phrase attached to Rahab every time you read it in the scripture. Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. She's the one that welcomed the spies that came into the promised land at Jericho. Why would you let that happen? Because God redeems even prostitutes. Bathsheba, we just talked about her story. And then there's one called, named Ruth. There's a book of the Bible called Ruth. Incredible story of how people left. Israel to go because there was a famine and all their husbands die. And she comes back with her her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. And she meets this guy named Boaz, and, and they get married, and it's incredible. And just a little while after um, they have children, then Jesse's born, and then David's born, and, and God says to David, you're going to be in the line of the Messiah. So here, here's my point restoration begins with my decision to turn away from my sin, to confess it to God and to whoever I've wronged. If, if that doesn't hurt them, that's one of the things we talk about in Celebrate Recovery. If you sinned against somebody 25 years ago, don't go knocking on their door today. That's inappropriate, especially, especially if it's sexual sin. That's just dumb. You don't go do that. You write a letter, you confess to somebody you, you know and love, burn the letter, whatever you need to do. But restoration begins when I turn away from my sin, I hand my shame and my past over to the Lord, and I let him restore me. Some of you need to be restored. You need to make a decision today to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you that you give us stories in the Bible of how you take sin and shame, and if we will just trust you, you'll turn it into something magnificent. I know in, in this room and I know online, God, there's, there's some people who are, who are struggling with shame. Help them to identify where their pain is coming from. Put it in the right bucket and respond the way you want them to. And then, Lord, when they lay their hearts and their lives before you, I, praise, I pray that you raise them up and you make them a shining light for people in this community. That they'll point people to you, they'll advance your kingdom, they'll glorify your name so that when we get to heaven, there'll be all kinds of folks there who are impacted by folks who've been restored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.